This whole Sony ki chidiya narrative. Does the world know this about India, or is it just Indians? Just Indians. Nuclear weapons were not in the Mahabharata. What are you saying, bro? <laughs> no, 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 I'm kidding. <laughs> to simplify it, the American mindset right now is China bad, India good. Why is India good? India good because India is not China, and India is like maybe America's friend against China. In India, the geopolitical narratives are that China's trying to do a lot of naughty shit in the world. Suddenly, being Indian has become a huge plus. We considered intellectually sexy because of people like yourself. The podcast that we did with Dr. Jay Shankar, he's our external affairs minister. He didn't paint brain drain. as something bad in the US the US has useful demographics and China is getting old before it's going to get rich is the fact that the one child policy is actually going to lead them to a bit of a demographic downfall we're entering an era where it's robotics over demographics how far away from that reality already it's already happening i don't think i've had a single person on this podcast who's broken it down in this much detail as okay. well which is why i think you're valued in the podcasting space please go on good sir I don't need to talk much about Balaji Srinivasan for anyone who's consuming podcasts regularly. He's a legend of the podcasting space, but he's also a legend of the tech world. He's a legend of the Twitter verse or the X verse as it's known now. This is a conversation that's focused on geopolitics for regular Balaji S listeners. You're going to have fun. For people who don't know about who Balaji S is, you're welcome. thank me at the end of this conversation because i'm introducing one of the most epic minds from the world of intellectuals in the modern day please enjoy today's episode it's completely loaded it's a very very dense episode you're going to have to listen to it multiple times but if you enjoy geopolitics this is a perspective on geopolitics from a very different place it's balaji shrinivasan on trs Honor of my life, good sir. Welcome to Mumbai. Welcome to India. How? Well, I'm um, I'm glad to be back, back to Barth. This is the this is where it all began. Okay. Uh, certainly, our, our germline began here, at least. Okay. Right? Yeah, go ahead. You're a bit of a cult figure, even here. Like things are spoken about Balaji Srinivasan in Mumbai, in Bangalore, in Delhi. Well, I I appreciate that, and hopefully, I. hope to be a more of an in person leader over here and invest in people and so on locally so yeah i find that pretty crazy that you're kind of coming back i don't know if that's the right phrase i think i mentioned this before but the first so i was born in the us right uh you know born on long island grew up in new york and and so on and for the first 20 years of my life being indian was not it was something i put in the liabilities column right being like the only indian kid in a school of like 400 you know caucasian kids who you know you know they they call you gandhi and you'd have to run <laughs> around and be like that's not an insult but they didn't care and you know this shit so like for the first <laughs> you know 20 something years of life that wasn't like a that was that was a negative factor um also there was pre internet this was like 1980 to 1997 1980 like um there's no internet um you're basically like in kind of jail right <laughs> uh because you're You know like you could be region locked. Yeah, yeah. Right? God. So you're like geography locked, your information locked cuz you can only read like very baby books or whatever. Then the next 20 years being Indian was kind of neutral, being in tech and so you know I went to Stanford, you know, taught at Stanford, taught stats and CS, started a genomics company, did crypto stuff like that. It was neutral. Nobody cared whether positive or negative. That was totally fine by me. But you know what's happened in the last few years? 
What? Like just the last five or six, especially, but you know, suddenly being Indian has become a huge plus. And I feel like, oh, wow, I had liability and then neutral, and now it's a huge asset, right? In the sense of- um, We're considered intellectually sexy because of people like yourself. Well, I mean, India has accomplished a lot in the last 40 okay. years, right? Uh, I, 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 you know, I, I think insofar as the diaspora has made a contribution, it's to show the world that, yeah, you know, Indians can play at a top level and that India was just sort of temporarily, had a temporarily unpleasantless <laughs> in the last <laughs> few hundred years, which is actually a small amount in you know, India's history as a civilization. And now that India is back or coming back on the world stage, um, a lot of things are happening at the same time. And so suddenly, you know, if you, if I had been born Gustav von Gustavsson, okay, <laughs> like my friend, you know, is a Swedish guy who runs a crypto hedge fund named Olaf, uh, you know, his tweets might be of interest in Sweden, mm. but there's like a limited kind of demographic there, right? And Sweden is fine. It's a fine country, but India's at a certain moment in its history. And so a lot of the stars are kind of lining up at the same time um, where, you know, I've you know been fortunate enough to have some capital. India has this talent. And so I'm going to be investing a lot in India, all in on India for, you know, the months and years to come. Okay. Do people know this whole Sony ki Chidiya narrative, which effectively translates to the golden sparrow narrative that so, in medieval times, we used to be the shit. And oh, then yeah. uh, we were colonized and money got taken away. Resources got taken away. Our education system broke down. Right. Uh, so does the world know this about India or is it just Indians? Uh, just Indians, kind okay. of, right? Okay. And the reason is that, um, okay, there's a sarcastic, this is, uh, this is a sarcastic phrase used on right-wing Twitter that I don't endorse, but it's basically, it says like, we was Kangs, okay? And basically it's meant to sarcastically refer to any group of people that's saying, oh, we were important back in the day. And now they're, you know, they're, they're basically talking about how, oh, we had kings and we were queens and so on. And you're like, well, you suck today, right? <sighs> mm. and, uh, and it was fake what you're saying in the past because it doesn't even exist and so on. Now, the thing about this is um, I sort of understand where that sentiment comes from, but I actually disagree with it because it isn't true that all of the achievements of the past were fake. You have to actually go back into the past and feel like, okay, what parts of it were real and what parts, for example, um, Nuclear weapons were not in the Mahabharat, okay? But, you know, some people will say- <laughs> What are you that, saying, Bharat? <laughs> no, 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 I'm, I'm kidding, go on. <laughs> you know, so, so people will make these sort of like insane claims, you know, about the past. And then you'll have to, you know, India was so great. We were nuki people, you know, that, right? And, um, but you have to be able to disentangle that from what you can actually see. And, um, you know, the way, the way I kind of think about it is uh, history is running in reverse. I've got a whole like slide deck or whatever on this, but I'll try and briefly summarize. Please feel free. We have all the time. Okay, great. So um, the short version is that uh, like there's lots of events that were happening in the past that are happening today, but in the opposite outcome. Okay. You can roughly think of, let's say 1950 as a mirror moment and going into that time period, everything is getting more centralized and more westernized. And then as you kind of go away from that, it gets more decentralized and de-westernized, okay? And, uh, you know, so let me just first give some examples to understand what I'm saying and then like sure. get the pattern. So for example, 
1890, the U.S. frontier, meaning the Western frontier, where you know you'd go wild west, and so on, that the 1890 the U.S. frontier closed. But in 1991, the internet uh, frontier opened because the internet became open for business. If you go backwards in time, you have Spanish flu. Forwards in time, you have COVID-19. You go backwards in time, and you have China as the junior partner in the Russia-China relationship. Forwards in time, you have Russia as a junior partner in the Russia-China relationship. Okay. Backwards in time, you have a British ancestry man um, ruling India. Forwards in time, you have an Indian ancestry man uh-huh. running the UK. Right. And it even gets to the point of like you had British guys talking about the partition of India, and now you have uh, an Indian ancestry guy and a Scot and a uh, Pakistani ancestry guy running Scotland talking about the partition of the UK. If you saw that, right, that was a huge, you know, viral meme. That meme is not just one thing. There's like 50 other examples like this, a hundred other examples. I've written up in this book, one of the chapters uh, in the network state. And it's, it's essentially, I'll just give a few more, right? So back in time in the 1930s, the New York Times sided with Stalinist Russia against Ukraine. I don't know if you knew this. No. Okay. Well, this is a bit of history that's being covered up. Sure. But the New York Times in the US was on the side of Stalin's Russia to choke out the rebellious presence of U- Ukraine, right? Okay. Today, it's the opposite. The New York Times is on the side of Ukraine against Russia, right? Lots of flips like that have happened, okay? And um, another huge one is back in, back in the day, the US was a massive exporter of goods and China was just a market. And it had the opium wars and it was, you know, um, it was addicted to drugs and so on and so forth. Now that's kind of happening in reverse, mm. right? It's China that's a massive exporter of goods. The U.S. is a market and the U.S. is a massive drug overdose and, and fentanyl problem, right? So many things like this are happening where um, like that 1950-ish moment is like this mirror moment. And why is it a mirror moment? Well, one reason is that as you go into that, you know, thing, for hundreds of years, technology had been centralizing, like mass media and mass production, but also telegraph and the railroad and, and so on. But then you have the invention of the transistor and things start decentralizing. You have the transistor, the personal computer, um, you know, the internet, smartphone, cryptocurrency. And so all of the centralized structures that got built up over here, you know, including like, you know, just a few empires controlling the whole world, like the US and the USSR, all of that centralization has just started metabolizing and breaking down and um, in the West, at least. And so that's why you're getting more and more chaos there. Meanwhile, in the East, you know, if, if you take that 1950 moment, the US at the time was very highly unified. It was the interstate highway system and so on. 1947, 1949, you have China and India uh, coming off of civil war and partition, right? And um, and they were basically just in their least unified, right? Civil war and partition, very disunified. The US was completely unified under basically one, even if it was two parties, it was really one country, right? And now, 70 years later, those are almost like an opposite phase, mm-hmm. right? India, after struggling through for a while through socialism and so on, is now the most unified it's ever been in its history. It was never one country before, right? And China is also very highly unified. The US is more and more disunited, right? So that's like a macro frame I have on the world. And so, you know, we don't have to talk about how, I mean, we should know about it for sure. We should know within India how great Indian civilization was. But the, what makes people believe that is not the past. You know what makes people believe it? Is landing something on the moon. It's the future. Mm. What we're doing right now in order to build a more effective future. Yes. So within, you know, within India, the narrative of 
we we did do well in the past and we were only temporarily down the golden sparrow narrative and, and so on that you mentioned has merit outside it sounds like whining or fake mm. until you land something on the moon and then you can say guess what you know we put this on the moon for 75 million dollars that's less than the cost of making a movie about it in the us mm. that's impressive that's globally impressive right um you know like the airports are impressive. You know, like the Mumbai airport, Bangalore airport, they're world-class airports. The hotels now, they're like world-class, like you you just, you can't ask for something. I mean, you can always do better, right? But it is at the same level as a Singapore or like a, you know, any first world country or what have you. And even the term first world, I think we should start to deprecate it. Just like, you know, maybe, maybe India goes to Bharata or whatever. We'll see what happens no. with that, right? But you know what I use instead? When? We, we talk about the ascending world and the descending world, mm. right? Okay. Because that talks about rates of change. Mm. See, first and third, it initially referred to like first world of, you know, capitalist country, second world communist, third world non-aligned, but it became a ranking. That kind of implies a static aspect. So does developed and developing world. That's like the more euphemistic way of talking about it. But even that is patronizing because it says the developed world is just where things are and everything just converges to that, right? It's binary. It's not just binary. It is binary, but it's not just that. It also says developed world has developed. It's done. Ah, okay. And it can't get any better than that, mm. right? Actually, what's happening is that the, quote, developed world or first world, many big parts of it are declining. It's a declining world. Okay, I got to stop you yes, there. Go um, you spoke about the ascending and the descending yes. aspect. Could you quantify that a little bit sure. in terms of timeline? Ti timeline, yes. Um, Boy, well... It, so I would say, I mean, many people date it to 1991 for liberalization of India and 1978 for Deng Xiaoping's uh, liberalization of China, right? That's kind of when the ascent phase began for both China and India. When did the descent phase begin for the USA? Um, you can date it to different, I mean, everybody will put the date like decline happened at, at different moments. Um, how can you quantify that? Look at, for example, percentage of uh, U.S. share of global GDP. I mean, that's a pretty good one. You know, BRICS has just flipped that or what have you. Um, and there's counter arguments on this. People will say, well, American tech companies are still doing well. What do you mean? There's no American decline whatsoever. This is a whole separate topic. But the short version is, I think, the internet is to America as America was to Britain. Mm. It is like the internet is about as American as America is British. Mm. <laughs> Wow. Okay. Okay. Go on. Which is, and actually India is a big part of that. Like America had British influence and it started out British, but eventually it realized it wasn't British. It was its own thing. And it was a big battle and eventually it broke free and it had its own government. And then it had, you know, because uh, initially it had its own people and it had its own land, but it didn't have its own government. Right. And eventually it had its own government. I think the internet is to America in a similar way where the internet has way more than Americans on it. In fact, even just among English users, the majority of English speakers on the internet are going to be? Indians. Indians. Just because of the size. Just because of the size. This means, now up until this point, Americans were the single largest group of English speakers. And so in any English speaking environment, you, you assume that the majority is American. A lot of the things just kind of assume that the world revolves around it, right? Soon that's just not going to be the case, right? So just like there was a mass immigration of all these other European ethnicities into the USA, and it wasn't just like British Isles descended people, 
Similarly, all these other English-speaking people on the English internet are going to completely change the character of it, or already change the character of it. And so it becomes something quite different from America. And so you've got a people, and you've actually got a government, because blockchains are digital governments. They give you property rights and contract law and, and this kind of stuff. But you don't need to have a land, right? So it's the opposite. You know, America had a, had a people and had a land, but not a government. The internet has a people and it's starting to have a digital government, doesn't have yet doesn't yet have land. And I think that's what comes next. Anyway, that's a, <laughs> go okay, ahead. go on. That's a whole network state concept, right? You crowdfund territory offline. But coming all the way back up, um, I think, you know, the U.S. doesn't have to decline, of course, for others to ascend. It, and, and I don't want it to. It just so happens that it is, okay? Um, it's the shanty towns, the, you know, the homeless encampments in San Francisco. It's the drug overdoses. It's the drop in life expectancy it is the political polarization and the violence and just the general lack of, you know, and, and it's also the financial situation. The banks, they're getting downgraded and that's going to be very bad. Ray Dalio has written about all this. I won't recap all that. You, you can briefly though. Okay. Because I? I don't think too many people watch Ray Dalio's content okay. in India. All right. Okay. Th there's a lot of Indians watching this, which is why I'm kind of, while I'm speaking with you, yes. I'm tied between tying you down and saying, hey, could you explain this further? Sure. And just letting you go on and cater to the Balaji S audience. Okay. 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 <laughs> sure. Sure. So let me, let me say everything I said in a simple, simpler kind of form. Um, one, India absolutely has a glorious past. That's relevant within India. Sure. It is only two, something that people around the world will listen to when they see India actually leveling up today mm. and in the future and driving the future, right? Moon probe, that's really impressive. India having enough clout to be a player on the global stage and suddenly, you know, some somebody who's influential enough that other countries want their opinion. Nobody cared about India's opinion on, let's say, Iraq. Right back then, India was not a player on the world stage. Even during the financial crisis uh, ten years ago, you don't remember—at least I don't remember—oh, um, you know, India's central bank being a major player in terms of global, you know, developments on that. Right? Even five years ago, like actually five years ago, Americans were still not in full alignment that China was an issue. Right? Um, until really Trump in 2015, 2016, there's just only Europe existed. Like there was this blissful ignorance about China and India growing. Then there was anger towards China. And then more recently, there's been friendliness towards India, though India should also be very cautious about that friendliness, right? Which I'll come back to that point. And um, the, the decline in the US is so s significant that, you know, it, it's just safer walking around here. It, it just, it's just, you, you feel that this is a civilization on the ascent. That's a fundamental thing. People are, go ahead. No, go on. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm visualizing everything you're saying, but go on. Yeah, it's, it's. Um, for, all right, so what are the things that really jumped out to me as somebody who's have has a 40-year visual on India, okay? When I came to India in the 80s and 90s, uh, early 90s, before liberalization had like fully kicked in or whatever, I was a kid then, okay? What I remember, honestly, I'll just be, can I be honest? Please. Okay. I remember uh, filth, flies, like, you know, animals in the streets, like totally non-functional roads where you could go at tuk, 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 like this, huge crowds of people, like just, you know, you, you know, it was just, um, um, it was just, obviously there was tradition, there was culture, there was religion, all of that was always there and that's great, right? But like, I couldn't somehow square this. I was like, oh, the Indians that I know in the US are pretty good engineers and they're good at software, they're doctors, you know, this and that. Of course, it's a select group, 
but how they, you know, how they let the country get like so in disrepair like this, you know, is it really not possible to put it together? And of course, I was just a kid, so I didn't have the vocabulary to talk about this or, or think about this. So I was like, okay, well, that's just how it is, you know. And I think that um, I think I started to get impressed by India. Uh, do you remember the Golden Quadrilateral Project? No. Okay. Basically, one of the, some of the first highway system stuff that that India did. Uh, I was, uh, you know, I'd basically been pretty cynical about, oh, will the government ever get something done? I mean, it did. And then, you know, just the recent spate of successes, whether it's governments, really public-private, really India stack successes, you know, with UPI and Author and so on. It's a space program. But it's not just the software. It's also the physical infrastructure. All of that has improved enough that it's visible. It's clear that it's improving. And that really matters. It's not the base. You know, as an investor, you know, what you care about is the rate of improvement or the rate of decline. If something is declining, even if it starts from a high point over here, you don't know where it's going to get. But if nothing is arresting that decline, nothing is arresting San Francisco's decline. It has gone from this beautiful city to something that's a byword for just filth and chaos, right? There's more poop on the streets in San Francisco than there is in India. Like, or, okay, let me, <laughs> India is a big place, all right? Let me put it like this. I'll be more precise. There are the parts of India that I've been to are cleaner than San Francisco. Really? Okay. So you have to actually go back and forth. The, 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 there's now starting to be an overlap there. That there was it, We were talking about something that was on two different planets. Right? San Francisco was like clean and so on and so forth. India was over here. The fact that there is overlap now, right, where there are definitely parts of India that are better off and more modern and so on, and there are parts of San Francisco that are absolutely filthy and terrible, indicates that these distributions that were completely disjoint now have overlap. That's a more precise way of saying it, right? Not that A is cleaner than B or B is cleaner than A, but rather that these now have overlap in a way that they never did, okay? Anyway, let me, so, so that is just my, my general feeling is of civilization in ascent and descent. The Dalio thing, I mentioned the Dalio thing. Just watch Ray Dalio's Principles of the Changing World Order. It's a 40-minute video that recapitulates, it tells you a lot that I won't be able to just summarize all over here. But he, from a totally different angle, he doesn't even mention India in that video. He is starting to now, right? Again, as I said, the kind of American mindset sort of had picked up nothing because it was Europe, then China, and now just recently, India. Mm. Okay, They've just registered these two particles moving fast in their kind of field of view, right? And it's to simplify it, the American mindset right now is China bad, India good. Why is India good? India good because India is not China, and India is like maybe America's friend against China. It's kind of like that stupid and simple, right? Um, let me pause, get your thoughts. <laughs> okay. I have so much to say. Yes. Uh, and again, as a podcaster, I'm content driven. Sure. And I know that there's an American audience watching this as well. Sure. Which is why I kind of fear asking you questions about the Indian government. Because with my American friends, sometimes if I'm sharing things about the Indian government, a bunch of them switch off a little bit and I don't blame them. Sure. Uh, because I, th I think... I, they I, don't care about local politics. That's yeah. how they think about it, right? Uh, I mean, they care, they care a lot about what's happening in America. Right. But the impression I get is they're not too bothered about what's happening in the world until after COVID-19. Yes. I feel things have changed. I've not been to America since 2018 or 19. Right. So I, and I think that they're a little more interested in what's happening in the world right now, especially considering where the geopolitical world is at. Uh, in India, the geopolitical narratives are that uh, China is trying to do a lot of I mean, I'm, I'm really condensing thoughts here, but China's trying to do a lot of naughty shit in the world. Yeah, I mean, my view, so right. So basically, this is complicated, right? Um, 
the uh, the thing is that the U.S. was so powerful in 1991 that an entire generation after won the Cold War, right? That an entire generation of people has grown up thinking that being totally world dominant in is is their birthright, right? And um, because of this, uh, until about 2015. Nobody really, you know, gave any credit to the rest of the world. They didn't think anybody, this is in the U.S. They, they just, I mean, unless you were bombing it or it was a terrorist or something like that, right? Blowing it up. Um, the rest of the world, okay, that's fine over there. And the rest of the world was basically, okay, maybe you, you're immigrating from there. Now you're an American and, you know, okay, you, you came from India. You, you know, you came to our colleges. Great, you know, and maybe you can level up here, right? But for the most part, it just wasn't a topic of active concern for the average person, it still isn't really for the average person. I'll come back to it. Um, obviously, the U.S. you know foreign policy elite would would move back and forth and would care about these countries in in a certain way, uh, and they wanted to make sure they were all under like the U.S. control and umbrella. But for the most part, the U.S. just felt it was secure as kind of the global hegemon, right? That started to change around 2015, where um, essentially what Trump you know perceived was that. Uh, something that people have talked about for a while, which is that China was a real threat to blue-collar workers, right? From the U.S. perspective, it's a very simplified way of talking about it. It was taking all these jobs. That's how they think about it. They're taking all their jobs. And uh, so he, in 2015, do you remember those clips where he would say, China, 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 right? That was mocked at the time for his emphasis on China. Why? Because still among elite American sentiment, they're like, why are you getting mad at that? They're just making plastic stuff at Walmart. They're not a big deal. What, what, you know, are you racist here, dummy? You know, why are you, why are you making such a big deal out of this, right? That was still the mentality in 2015, 2016, that this is stupid, xenophobic, protectionist, blah, blah, blah. Now, you know, what happened three, even three years later, by the way, even in 2019, uh, Obama put out a documentary called American Factory, where he advocates for like US-China cooperation and so on and so forth. Then after COVID in 2020, the U.S. flailed to such an extent. See, that was the first disaster that I can remember in my lifetime. Maybe, you know, see, if when there's a hurricane in like Haiti or something like that, you'll see video of brawny Marines going and helping people out of ditches and so on. And the U.S. was always assumed to have the state capacity to not just take care of itself, but take care of everybody else. Even if it would blow up some people and it would help some people, it would have the state capacity to do that. It's very organized and so on, right? With COVID, the U.S. was just flailing very publicly for everybody to see. In fact, um, Rolling Stone, for example, reported that supplies had to be airlifted from China to the U.S. Mm. Because, of course, all the physical stuff is made in China, right? And so there was a huge blow to the uh, – it's not articulate as such, but to the sense of America's standing in the world, right? And after 2020, China in particular no longer respected the U.S.A., because they thought they had nailed COVID. Now, of course, they they had messed up in their own way, you know, with um, like infinite lockdown and so on and so forth. But they thought that they had a better model for society. And this is really fundamentally what broke, in my view, after 2020, is that China had been kind of looking up to the U.S. and, and thinking of it as like a society that there, were, there was a good chunk of people within China, even if not the CCP leadership level. But many of their daughters and sons who had gone and been educated there, uh, they kind of looked up to the U.S. still, right? Thought of it as a better society in some ways. That was totally shattered after 2020. And the fact that China no longer looked up to the U.S. and is now like kind of 
you know, making its own way. Champ and number one contender. Well, yeah, right. So here's the thing. At that point, now it wasn't just the blue checks. It wasn't just the blue collars that were threatened by China. It was the blue checks. So it wasn't just the working class, but the journalists, I mean, you know, the elite of American society, they were like, wait a second, our empire is being challenged by this other empire who's no longer listening to us because they don't, they, the part they haven't gotten yet is that last bit. They don't understand that China doesn't respect America, right? That is actually the key driver. Everything is talked about in terms of military force and so on and so forth. But fundamentally it is China doesn't feel America is a better model anymore. That is a difference post-2020. What, what do you feel? What do I think? Um, I think that most Americans don't know anything about China. And if you explain something about China, then often they'll be like, what are you on? You're, you're on the side of the Chinese? You're a <laughs> CCP agent? You're shill or something like that? And so like, you know, but, but it's important to know like basic facts. It's kind of like, uh, imagine you're playing another basketball team. You should know, you know, that that guy is a good three-point shooter. You're not like a, oh, you're a, you're a Knicks shill, you know, <laughs> you're, you're advocating for him. I'm like, no, I'm just saying he's a good three-point shooter over here. And he's had a good tracker of that. What, you hate us? You want us to lose, right? That's, that's like, uh, you know, the mentality is something where people have gotten to the point we're making even factual observations on China, they'll kind of lose their mind, right? So with that out of the way, let's, you know, here's just some factual observations about China. Um, they are about to flip Germany and Japan for, you know, being the number one car exporter, you know, because of the electric vehicles. Okay. They're by far number one in steel production. They are the number one exporter to most countries in the world. They have um, basically built a bunch of beautiful cities over the last you know, 20, 30, 40 years. And of course, they've done all of this while having a total state that brooks absolutely zero, you know, dissent outside of, you know, the, the party. Basically, all of these different possible contenders, where it's Falun Gong, or it's, you know, the, the Uyghurs, or it's the Hong Kong protesters, or it's the tech guys like Jack Ma, or anybody, you know, or Boji Lee is this guy who's like a, who's like a left guy, you know, in, the, in 2012, he's like a Maoist. All of these different, you know, things, and they're from different parts on the political compass. Some are libertarian, some are left. None of that matters. Only the CCP, right? So all political dissent at, at a certain level is, is crushed. That's true. the The thing is that their machine has been building most of the physical goods of the world. You have to acknowledge that that is true, because it also impacts their relative military strength. For example, the U.S. Secretary of the Navy just admitted, um, we can probably pull that, play that clip, okay, that one Chinese shipyard has more shipbuilding capacity than all U.S. shipyards combined. Mm. Do you know that? No. Okay. That, you know, the U.S. Navy has a slide showing that China has 200x the shipbuilding capacity of the USA. Of course, they've also got 200x the capacity of building almost everything else, right? So it's the peacetime manufacturing that translates into the wartime. The problem is many Americans are so invested in this image of themselves as Top Gun and, and so on and so forth, that you know, totally invincible military. There's a thousand movies that have said this. This is their self-image. That they just don't understand the level of strength that China has built, right? They kind of understand on the manufacturing side, but somehow there's like a, it's hard for them to say, oh, and actually also all the guns too, right? Mm. Because that now is like, whoa, okay, the, the full logical implication, that is a very big deal. 
However, you have defense manufacturers like Raytheon, American defense manufacturers, saying publicly they can't decouple from China. Okay, so the American defense ecosystem is saying publicly that it's made in China, mm. right? So, um, so in a sense, uh, there's a lot to criticize about the Chinese model, but has it built an immense amount of power for modern China? It has built an immense amount of power for modern China. That is absolutely true. Go ahead. Uh, one of the geopolitical narratives about China in India is the fact that the one-child policy is actually going to lead them to a bit of a demographic downfall. Oh yeah, where, this is the Zaihan thing. Uh, yeah. So I mean, and the reverse narrative is true in India that we have a young population which is going to build the next phase of India. It's going to be a huge working class. Yeah, and there's some truth to this. Okay, you don't but, think it's entirely true? No, I don't think it's entirely true. So you think that even though they have an aging population. Uh, that doesn't matter as much as the geopolitical commentators are saying that it does. Yeah. So, so basically, there's this guy, uh, man. You know, I should basically just write, do one video that just kind of encodes this as a rebuttal or whatever, and then so I don't have to. I can just cite that. Okay. This but is that video. This is that video. Okay. 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 Great. Well, I have to put up the slides and stuff, so I'll put, give you the links. Okay. All right. But essentially, um, so on the demographics point. So first. Is it good that all else being equal, you'd want a younger population versus an older population? Yes, all else being equal. However, there's there's definitely countries that have huge young populations, um, Nigeria, Indonesia, et cetera, uh, that, I mean, they have, they're showing some economic growth, but um, let's say Estonia or Japan do not have huge young populations, however, they're highly modernized, right? It's not the entirety of it to say just sheer quantity and youth, okay? Um, there's more to it than that. So, for example, often the, that comparison between, let me do first China versus U.S. demographics, and then let's talk India demographics. The, um, it is not simply the quantity, sheer quantity of people, it's also the quality of people. And it's in the U.S., you know, some, sometimes people will say, uh, oh, the U.S. has youthful demographics and China is getting old before it's going to get rich and so it's finished, et cetera. Okay. This is cope. In my, you, know, you know the term cope? Like, yeah. I mean, I, I can kind of understand what you mean by Okay. That. Cope, it's like... like it, it is taking. Um, you're, you're just seeing the stuff that suits your own narrative. Yeah, exactly. It's it's taking like one true fact, but actually the things point in the opposite direction, because in the U.S. Um, the so first of all, you have the things I mentioned. You have soaring rates of drug overdoses. You have soaring rates, uh, or you have high and and flat but still high rates of out of wedlock births. Okay, so like broken homes, divorces. Um, you have, and we're talking like huge numbers, okay? Um, you've got uh, plummeting life expectancy. It went like this, mm. right? Which is a signal of something very catastrophically wrong in a society that life expectancy is falling off a cliff because of these so-called deaths of despair, right? Um, you have, due to drug overdoses and car crashes and other crazy kinds of things, okay? You have um, huge amounts of, uh, you know, the uh, obviously political polarization. And you also have ethnic polarization where racial groups are taught to hate each other, okay? And if you take that demographic pyramid, it's not just, oh, there's a lot of young Americans. The young Americans are mostly, for example, you know, Latino immigrants or, or children of Latino immigrants or, or recent immigrants. And the older one, uh, generation are like boomers. And supposedly these, you know, young immigrants are going to pay the social security of retiring boomers when social security is bust. Mm. That's not going to happen. So that's actually just a recipe for ratio economic conflict 
between two groups that see themselves as different because the entire press and academia are telling themselves to think of themselves as different, not like one unified young country where the only variable that matters is youth in America. And you need to go a little more granular than that, right? So actually, the U.S. has just set itself up for like massive ethnic, racial, economic conflict. And, you know, it's, it's just something where they're just telling it's like an illusion to say, oh, youth is good because that youth has to feel itself aligned with the elderly and not if it's being taxed to pay for the elderly. And the elderly will say, wait a second, I paid in Social Security. I, I should get it. The entire Social Security thing. Do you know what Social Security is? Like pension. It's like a pension, but it's a Ponzi. Okay. Okay. So it's not actually solvent. Okay. So uh, maybe to explain this, you can take the example of a 65-year-old in USA right now and what they were doing in the 90s, 2000s, and 2000s. Yeah. So, so essentially, through your entire adult life in the US, you pay into a fund called Social Security. And there's like supposed to be some money there for you in retirement. But the US government is terrible at accounting and terrible at actually having that money. And so there's a shortfall coming in terms of what it actually owes retirees, it taxed and then spent the money and then doesn't actually have it for the retirees. And if you had just had that money and had it in the stock market, you would have done much better anyway, put it in an index fund. So it's like a double loss. It was taxed from you when you could have used it um, as a young person or something like that. It was taken from you. And even if they had just forced you to invest it, you could have invested in something better. So they took it from you, they wasted it, and then you depend on it and it's not there, right? And then so all of these older people will be mad, where's my social security check? And then the state will either have to tax or will have to print and dilute, and then younger people will get mad that they're being taxed to pay for the older people. So, I mean, this is the type of stuff, where, let's be absolutely real, right? These are, these are recipes that is a great way of getting the young to hate the old, social security insolvency, right? And that's absolutely gonna blow up, okay? And this is one of like 15 different things. The point is that, it, you know, the even the term United States, it's like the disunited states. Yeah, that's yeah. the impression I get from the outside when you listen to American podcasts or even if you meet Americans. Yeah, it's extremely strong political opinions, which is fine, but they absolutely hate the other side. Yes. Um, and, and you kind of almost look down on someone for just one of the tiny opinions yeah. that doesn't <laughs> represent like everything that they think of. And honestly, that's happening a little bit in urban India because urban India is incredibly inspired by America subconsciously. Yeah, unfortunately. Uh, so that's a big thing. Yeah. So let's come back to that. Go ahead. Uh, yeah. You don't see that happening in the rest of India. Right. And for a lot of urban Indians who want to build big businesses or big careers, they look at interior India as like the marketplace because that's where the money is actually increasing. Right, right. So it kind of makes me think that, hmm, it's exactly what you said about the descending world and the ascending world. Yes, it's complicated. So, you know, obviously you want to be able to sell into the U.S. So you need to understand the culture and so on and so forth without bringing the bad aspects of the culture, you know, yeah. back or whatever. I also but, just, okay. I don't mean any yes. offense to Americans yes. because yes. Uh, often when you're speaking to Americans, it's very rare that you get to steel man arguments. Yeah, uh, sure. Unless you're listening to like a Joe Rogan or Lex Friedman podcast. Sure, right. And, and so, so the thing is that basically, um, I hopefully I don't think any offense intended. You know the the thing is that um, I mean people recognize the degree of polarization. The demographic thing though is something where once you understand, okay, actually those demographics are not that great, right? Let's talk China's demographics. Okay, they, first of all, every math and science competition, just go and take a look. Usually China is programming, it's math, science. They do pretty darn well, right? A, um, B is uh, they. Um, they don't have, they have their own issues, okay, but they don't have 
um, massive ethnic riots in cities and so on and so forth. In fact, it's the opposite. They're using the state to totally crush that kind of thing. Um, more importantly, the um, when it, when it comes to so so. They're the opposite of fractious and disunified, right? They are unified under an iron fist, which is different, right? The other thing is that the demographic issue, the Chinese are, I mean, remember, this is a population of 1.3 billion. Yeah, it's a decline, but it's a relatively gradual decline. And this is a much smaller population, and it's got its internal problems that, you know, we're talking about. This is the US over here, 300 something million versus 1.3 billion. So, it's this weird thing where we're like, oh my God, China's demographic. Like demographics have been one of China's strengths forever. Their sheer quantity has does have a quality there. With that said, they recognize that the country is getting older, that you know the one-child policy was a mistake, and so on and so forth. So what have they been done doing? Basically, anything that is possible for a state to do, they're going to try. They've got the three-child policy now. They're doing subsidized IVF. They're shutting down, or they have shut down all of these expensive after-school education things that were making parents feel they had to spend so much money. Um, so trying to shut that down. Uh, they have launched a total attack on like real estate prices. They're trying to bring down real estate prices so that people can get married and have kids and, and have homes. They actually want to crash real estate prices. Xi has talked about, you know, homes should be for living in, not an investment, et cetera. And so all the regulators went out there and started trying to actually try to bring down home prices. Um, they're doing, you know, some of the most interesting things, it's worth, this not being widely reported outside of China, but South China Morning Post tracks some of this, subsidized IVF. Do you know what IVF is? Yeah. yeah. Right? In vitro fertilization, right? So that is something that's at like a, a few percentage points in terms of, you know, I don't know the exact number, but between one to 10%, but probably like four or 5%, but it's been creeping up in terms of the percentage of births with that, right? Um, maybe maybe five is a high number. I have to look at the exact number, but it, but it's on the order of that, right? I love yeah. how you get into the details. And I think this is why people listen to you, but go on. Because okay. usually people take tiny narratives and generalize massive uh, predictions based on those tiny narratives. But you're getting into the details and then drawing out geopolitics. I try to, I try to. And if I, I may be wrong, but at least I've got, I can explain my reasoning. I don't think I've had a single person on this podcast who's broken it down in this much detail as okay. you have. And right. I, I don't even hear these kind of geopolitical narratives on American podcasts, which is why I think you're valued in the podcasting space. Please go on, good All right. sir. Okay, okay, <laughs> good, good, good. So the thing is that... Um, you know, I mean, what does China excel at? China excels at taking a technology that works and taking it apart and figuring out how to just scale it, right? Just to scale it, that's the China model, right? And um, to make it cost effective uh, or really, you know, like very cheap, very scalable, and just mass, mass, mass produced, right? They, given that technological bit of fire, they just improve it. IVF works. IVF has worked for a long time. All the all, there's a, there's a lot of there's a whole tech stack around IVF. Maybe and what what China's looking at is maybe every Chinese woman just gets free IVF. And so they get two two children, three children per person where they just mass produce them. Right? This is not actually totally crazy for them to do that if they lean into that the society level. Um, knowing their past tendencies. That yeah. If they see a problem, they'll solve it and grow really fast. Yeah, exactly. You okay. know, have, you, have you heard of uh, this guy, Cass Sunstein? No. In the US, he, he, this guy, policy guy, he wrote this book called Nudge. You know what the equivalent in China would be? It'd be shove. <laughs> <laughs> like so, force people into helping your geopolitical problems. Yeah, well, because for example, like you have, 
Um, we just had the whole COVID thing where you had to show a pass to show your vaccination status um, to like open a door or something like that. Is it that big a step to say, to show your pregnancy status, how many kids you've had, and then you get to the front of the bus, mm. front of the line, mm. right? Actually, a lot of countries are experimenting this kind of thing. For example, I think I may be misquoting this, but I believe um, in Hungary, if you have a certain number of children, uh, that woman is like tax-free for life, okay? And you could probably pencil it out, and it probably does work out mathematically, you know? Like in the sense of, okay, this number of children, well, they will produce Z dollars in taxes mm. over their lifespan, and this person will produce less than that, so we'll take more money in the future for less day. It probably works out economically, right? Something like that could, could also work. So China will just throw the kitchen sink at this. Whether that actually, uh, and then they've also got Chinese nationalism, which is a, a powerful force in its own to, to motivate people. So whether that actually works is TBD because you know you they, they threw this powerful state at COVID and that wasn't actually what solved COVID, it was vaccination and, and you know perhaps just natural immunity from the virus just having its way with the population and getting all the people who are vulnerable to it and then you know going away like a like a summer storm and just burned through everybody who was vulnerable and then you know it was finished right um, people had immunity plus vaccination so so putting people locking them down and so on was just the state doing things that didn't actually the so-called non-pharmaceutical interventions didn't have an effect so what I when I say if state intervention does have an, can have an effect that's not obvious that it will but if it is possible for a powerful state to get the birth rates up, then China will will be doing that. Um, and so it's not. And then the last and maybe the most important is we're entering an era where it's robotics over demographics, right? Damn. Okay. So and, and the reason is you have robots themselves, you have AIs, so you can substitute techno capital for human capital in more and more and more things. Go ahead. How far are we from that reality? Robotics. It's already happening, right? Yeah, I mean, like you can already have support bots. Support chatbots are better than human chatbots in many contexts, right? Okay, please correct yeah. me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Uh, the one thing I've learned about geopolitics is that whoever's richer wins the geopolitical game on many fronts. Oh, I so disagree with this. Okay. okay. Yeah. You can, I, yeah. I, I, I want to be schooled, honestly. Yeah. So go. I'm going to I'm gonna lay out a lot of the geopolitical go, go, narratives go. I've learned on the show. Yeah. And, and, and these yeah. are the narratives of my audience and a lot of people around the world. Sure. As well. Okay. Uh, the countries that are richer win geopolitical races. That's one, uh, as in geopolitical competitions. The second is that in order to become richer, you focus on manufacturing. And, and in order to improve manufacturing, you focus on infrastructure. In order to focus on infrastructure and manufacturing in the long term, you need more people. Like that's probably what's happened in the recent past, like with China's massive population, helping the manufacturing, helping the infrastructure growth, therefore helping them geopolitically. Okay. Uh, you're the first person who's come on and said that no robotics is going to replace demographics as a requirement. Yes. I think the only way to predict the distant future is to kind of study the distant past. And in the distant past, wars were won because of uh, technology. Whoever yes. had superior technology would actually win the biggest wars. Uh, I think a repeat of that is going to happen. So whoever is the technological leader in the world will probably come out in the geopolitical race. Yes. Uh, please okay. correct me wherever you disagree with okay. this narrative. So there's several, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of good there, but let me shoot at like about five different points there. Go okay. for it. Go for. First is, why do I say the rich guy won't necessarily win, right? Well, San Francisco is spending $300 million on a bus lane and India landed a probe on the dark side of the moon for one fourth the price of that. 
Okay. So when you're rich, but they're spending that inefficiently, they will become poor. It's that whole Joe Rogan narrative about soft times create soft people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, this all the U.S.'s main export is the dollar. Like, leave aside Tech America. Okay, <laughs> go ahead. No, go on, go on. Yeah. So, so leaving Tech America aside, right? The main export is the dollar. And if you've got a printing press, why would you bother dirtying your hands mining coal? Mm. Right? Why would you bother digging something out of the ground? Why would you bother, you know, going and um, like like actually creating value? Just run off another you know, $50 bills and hand them out. Of course, they don't actually physically do that, but conceptually, right? So the problem is that when you do that, everybody else gains the capability to make stuff. China makes stuff, right? And um, the factories are in China. And then suddenly what happens one day is you're, and this is the USA, it's just got a money printer and, um, and, it, and it administers a network. I'll come back to that point. But it's got a money printer, but it doesn't have... You, you know, it doesn't have the, the factory and the manufacturing assets, it doesn't have the supply chain. And that's all overseas. And the real world is overseas. So in a sense, sometimes being so wealthy makes you um, like, a, like a spoiled, privileged guy who's inherited a huge fortune and doesn't know how to work for a living, right? They're so rich, they don't know how to work for a living, right? Um, it, you know, the way I put it is, it's like founding versus inheriting, mm. okay? So think about a guy who founds a factory and that's an entrepreneur and they're like, you know, Henry Ford or Rockefeller, you know, like captain of industry. Then they pass it down and then the fifth generation grandson or whatever inherits a Ford or Rockefeller name. So they're legitimate. But if you ask them to go and build a car factory or, you know, run an oil derrick, they're not competent. No offense to those guys or whatever, you know, I'm not beating up with the Fords or Rockefellers. Just an abstract example. Point being that that's actually what has happened with the establishment. Like George Washington, um, you know, or or the guys that did the Manhattan Project, those are all like founder level guys who did like zero to one, something that had never been done before. And now all the people running the US establishment are just inheritors. They could never have built those things in the first place. And in fact, what they have inherited, they've started to destroy with like the state of the streets of San Francisco and um, you know, in, in many other things. That's the most visible piece. Okay. It's where the abundance mindset goes wrong. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's abundance mindset becomes um, arrogance mindset, mm. like it becomes infinity mindset, um, and um, it's like nothing, no constraints. You print infinite money, nothing ever happens, right? So that's why the point about the richer party wins. The U.S. only has financial wealth. China actually, you you know, has has the physical world. And it does deals with the BRICS countries and it's piping oil and so on. There's Red America still does some physical labor and Gray America, Tech America still definitely generates value. But Blue America, like the administrative state is, is, the, is the majority, it's like dominant. And it doesn't understand that um, like the legal work that it provides to the rest of the world. Well, actually, here's one way of thinking about it. Think of the US as like, especially after 1991 as being like the CEO of the world, hmm. okay? Everybody else is like a worker that works, and the U.S. provides the rules-based order, so to speak, and, and it fires or disciplines somebody who gets out of line, and it takes a cut for all of these services, okay? But it's, it's COO who has built this giant manufacturing thing, no longer wants to listen to the CEO, mm. and the COO is the one who actually knows how the whole thing works and knows where the screws are and the bolts and the nuts are, and that's like kind of similar to this conflict. And in many ways, a lot of other countries around the world also want to fire the CEO. Mm. They don't want the U.S. to be, you know, like 
they don't want the U.S. in control of all their affairs. They don't want them sanctioning this, sanctioning that, blocking this, doing that. The U.S. they don't feel is a good leader anymore, right? And the leader, the CEO, is really mad about this because they don't want to lose their power, right? Uh, but they also don't want to, you know, it's been such a long time since they were a rank and file worker who had to work for a living and actually had to build and ship things. It was like a couple of generations ago that they also don't know what to do outside of this. Okay, that's like a rough analogy for this is that a good chunk of the world wants to, quote, fire the CEO, which is they want to fire the U.S. as a leader of the world. There's a woman named actually Fiona Hill, who is a neocon ish type, uh, and, but who wrote a really good article about this a few months ago that Glenn Greenwald tweeted. Um, and I want to say it's something like. Um, there, she she uh, it was the Lenart Mary lecture. OK, so you can probably find it from that. And she talked about how. Um, when people talk about Ukraine, they're talking about Ukraine as a proxy war of the U.S. versus Russia. Yeah. But she, and this is an American neocon who supports that war and so on, she's like, actually, in many ways, it's a proxy war of the world using Russia against the U.S. order. <laughs> wow. Okay. Okay. And she's like, lots of countries, even if they have no beef with Ukraine, you know, as beef with Ukraine, they don't like the U.S. telling them, okay, we're going to sanction you here. You can't do this human rights lecture, et cetera, et cetera. They don't believe the U.S. has any authority on human rights after blowing up the whole Middle East to kill all these people, right? What authority does it have? It just said it's systemically racist at home, right? It said it hates black and brown people. Mm -hmm. Then it gets on you know, TV like 18 months later, and they're saying, we're the champion of democracy, and all the black and brown countries have to get behind us for Ukraine or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. So there's, you know, the reason, by the way, do you know why that, that's a failure? You know why that happened? Because in 2020... Democrats were running against Republicans. So uh, it was to their interest uh, when they're fighting Republicans to say, America's systemically racist. Oh my God, we're so bad. And then, you know, they, they won that battle. Then when they're fighting Russians, now they're the champion of democracy. Hmm. Okay. And so what's happened is because of the internet, the domestic propaganda and the foreign propaganda can be seen by the same person and the context collapses. Right. And that's new. Right, and we have enough memory to remember things from just a little bit away. It used to be that the domestic message and the foreign message could be, you know, like who would read all the local papers and all the global papers and be able to put that together and disseminate that. You wouldn't be able to do that. So you could narrow cast one message and broadcast another message, and and that's not what's what's there anymore. Okay. Coming back to your to your thing about um, you had a story about the factors of of, of things that would lead to geopolitical dominance. dominance. Yes. And we were talking about robotics and demographics. So one is wealth alone doesn't get you there, or, or rather, um, money alone doesn't get you there because uh, if you spend it very inefficiently, you get you know stuff like what we talked about. Number two is it's not sheer quantity of population. The huge part of the industrial revolution was going from you know the the your strong back to effectively mining muscle out of the ground with coal and oil and so on, right? And that's why you know we call it horsepower, right? You've heard like a horsepower engine. You know, in a sense, where it comes from is, if I was to have a bunch of horses pull this cart, how many would I need? Versus replace those horses with an engine, what is the horsepower of that engine? Like that's that's conceptually where it comes from. Okay, so you're like mining the muscle of a horse or a human out of the ground as a rock you know, or, or, or a barrel of oil, right? A rock of coal or barrel of oil. And that completely changed the world because we could replace muscle with something artificial. Now with AI, we can replace brain with something artificial, mm. right? You can replace muscle with, uh, with coal and you can replace brain with silicon, 
Okay. So that's a, as huge a change as like learning that you could use coal and oil to build engines, right? That's a, that's what that's how big a deal AI is. That's why robotics is demographics. Because you can put this brain into all kinds of things where there would have been a human brain before, just so you can put an engine into all kinds of things where there would have been a human muscle before. And um and that 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 will increase our capabilities to an extent that people didn't even get yet, right? Um it's it's a new huge factor in the geopolitical race of the world. It's it's yes, it's I mean yes, but it's also uh it's at the scale of like oil. Gotcha. Right? In terms of how it just transforms what humans do. Okay. At, at coal. It's it's like that, right? You're replacing something where you need to have a human in the loop or you just don't, right? The thing is also, this is not a theoretical thing. You know why I say robotics greater than demographics? It's kind of already happened on the internet. You know why? 12 years ago, um, Instagram had about, it's on the order of 12 people, 13 people, and Kodak had about 1,000 XN number, 13,000 people. Who won? Instagram, mm -hmm. right? So they're one one-thousandth size with 1,000 X as many users mm. for their digital photography, mm. right? So that's like a million-fold differential of a small, highly motivated team with the internet why is that? Because they could hit a key and they could automate all these things, right? They weren't manually going in, you know, having a dark room where they hold up all those photos. Remember, you know, from the 80s, they weren't doing all that. That was doing it done on servers. So they had robots working. For, we call them, you know, they call them online. You call them bots, mm, mm. right? You call them bots online. They had bots, automated, you know, jobs, schedulers that would take in things from their users and they would, you know, signal process them and apply the filters and give them back, right? They didn't have a huge dark room doing this because robotics are demographics. Rather than have thousands of people doing this manually, they had code doing it, right? And that's the story of the last 20 years is everything online is automated. And a small team can do much, much more than a large, large number of people if that small team is smart enough. You give the right instructions to the right robots, and then you just sit back and everything is taken care of, okay? That fits the Indian mindset, by the way. Yeah. Right? yeah. We just want to kind of, we don't want to crank the thing all day long. We want to figure it out, write the right instructions, and let it go. Okay? Small and efficient. Yes. So that's our leapfrog strategy, okay? So just like, you know, you go from nothing, you know, to, you don't go to landlines, you go directly to cell phones. India, if it does want to get into manufacturing, should just go straight to robotics. Mm. Boom. Okay, right? Okay, Why on. is this? And this is part of a general thesis, which is, you know, I did this on um, on Thunmay's show a while back, how India can win-win. So I'm, you, we can link that, you know, in, in here, okay? Uh, I guess, he, he, you know you know him, he's a friend and so yeah. I know he's another podcast. You don't <laughs> want to link another podcast, but it's fine, okay, okay. But basically, um, the um, overall theory is India's strategy should be software first on everything. So, because India's really strong on software, so every problem converted into a software problem. So how do you convert manufacturing into a software problem? Robotics, mm. right? Because the six degree of freedom arm, which is like, you know, so it's why it's six, it's like X, Y, and Z. And then it's like, it's a, you know, it's theta and phi, it's orientation in three space, okay? Didn't understand this. Didn't understand this, all right. Point is, there's a, there's a robot arm, a type of robot arm called a six degree of freedom robot arm, where just with software, you can do a lot. Okay. Okay. Um, and pause me anytime. I'm just saying stuff that is not. No, this is the only point. Okay. Go on. All right. Great. The thing about robotics is actually there's a lot of Indians who are good at robotics. Um, I did robotics in my first company, genomics company. Uh, 
there's gray orange, there's diapers.com, there's like Mithra Robotics, there's um, this new thing called Clone that uh, Gary Tan and I just funded by Indian Guy in the US. There's quite a lot of Indians into robotics. It's something that we, you know, we're, we're good at, I think, or at least we, we're definitely competitive in it, right? Indians have had lower labor productivity than Chinese for a long time, if you've gone and measured that, right? And um, it's a little bit like, you know, it's funny to put it this way, but um, it's just something where uh, it, there's this Russell, um, there's this Russell Peters clip. Do you know Russell Peters? Okay. So, you know, he's this thing, he's talking about how Indians were once slaves, right? And he's like, uh, you know, but can you imagine an Indian who's a slave? No, you uh, pick the cotton, I'll make the t-shirts, right? You know that part, that clip? <laughs> yeah, right? Maybe yeah. we can play that clip, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm messing it up, okay? Yeah. Point being that the Indian stereotypically wants to just kind of figure it out conceptually and not do the manual labor if they can avoid it, mm. right? So robotics fits that mindset. It fits that kind of cultural groove of figuring it out. Because actually, it's quite hard, by the way, conceptually and mathematically to figure out exactly how you orient this robot arm and how you script it. Like, that's code. That's math. That's intellectually challenging. That we like. Okay? Mm. Figure that out and then let the assembly line run. Okay? okay. All right. So coming back. So A, the um, – so just in your narrative about what generates power, first, money alone doesn't necessarily do it. Too much money can actually be a weakness. Two – the AI thing is as big as like coal or oil. And in the past, it wasn't just quantity of people. Is once we got to coal and oil, you could mine muscle out of the ground. Now we can mine brain out of the ground mm. by, by, with silicon. Three, um, the robotics or greater than demographics is not some futuristic thing where you actually have to... People, when I say that, sometimes you, they have to visualize a physical robot running around. We will get that. Okay, Tesla's working on that. There's a lot of this stuff out there. Robotics is far more advanced. Have you seen the Have you seen the uh, Boston Dynamics videos? Yeah, yeah. Okay, actually, we'll put a clip up maybe um, that I tweeted a few months ago. It's like uh, ten years of progress. Mm. Okay, and it shows over the last ten years how like physical walking robots have gone from very slow and connected by a cable consuming a lot of power to things that can move completely on their own, do backflips. Have you seen that kind of stuff? Yeah. Right? Like the Jetsons. Like, like the Jetsons. We're yeah. getting closer to the Jetsons. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So I, I think that within our lifetime, everybody will have their own robotic, um, you know, Man Friday or Jeeves, okay? Or multiple, right? Mm. Like you'll have a house robot like your car that is coming, okay? So that should be an important goal. Like if you have a few goals for India, that's a big one. You know, I actually wish, you know, uh, this would be a good thing for some senior politician to do is for any area where India wants to do well technologically, they should have like a custom IIT style exam that they just tweet out. For example, let's say you want India to do well like, in, you know, you've heard the term industrial policy, right? Everybody thinks industrial policy means spending money. Okay, but it could just be you put together a rigorous exam on robotics, you tweet that out, and the top ten scorers um, get an audience with the prime minister. Damn. Okay, what you'll what will you get? You'll get ten million kids across the country studying for this, leveling up the country. Okay, and in that skill set for basically free, you have the curriculum online as well. All right. And uh, then they, you know, the winners go and get an audience with PMO and they talk about what they're doing for like one hour of time from PMO was time is valuable. Of course, you have this very scalable thing. You have to build a curriculum and so on beforehand. Right. And think about how much cheaper that is than spending money. 
That's what I'd like to see India's industrial policy. America's industrial policy. You're got, doing the Indian thing by saying, oh, I'll come up with a concept I want. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right? That skills, that's it's smart, it's smart lazy. Right. Right? It is um how do you get leverage out of it and do it in a smart way, right? Mm. And what that does is, I mean, industrial policy is not about money, it's about skills, skill building. Skill building is about education. The reason I know the US isn't serious about this is it's just spending money. You know what it isn't doing? It's not Biden tweeting out an exam about quantum mechanics, right? If you're actually serious about semiconductor leadership, he should be talking about the, I mean, not that he even knows what this stuff is, okay? But like, you know, the band gap and crystal structures and, you know, like uh, you, you could actually devote these political feeds to something more valuable than just stupid lowest common denominator stuff, right? You could have, you know, uh, you could direct people's attention to what's important. What I just described, by the way, with that like robotics exam competition, you can apply it for nuclear power, mm. right? You can apply it for any other area of interest to the country. You take India's existing exam culture, because we have an exam culture, right? The JE and, and so on and so forth. You take I India's existing um, exam creators, right? Because you've got the people who the, the people who set the JE, right? The ones who write the JE questions. You just task them with doing this, okay? And maybe you have... Uh, proctored administration of the exam, okay? So there's some logistics that are associated with that. There you go. That's your industrial policy. Okay. Um, this is probably the podcast where I've spoken the least okay. uh, because you're breaking a lot of my preconceived notions about a lot of different things. Uh, also, I'm trying to download as much as I can sure, sure, off sure. of you and I'm going to take this in my further podcast. Totally. Especially when I'm talking to the politicians. Yep. Because I've spoken to a lot of politicians in the recent past and I know that they listen, uh, but they're so busy that they want condensed information. Totally, totally, totally. Okay, so yes. one of my requests to the audience is, I know there's a lot of Twitter users listening to this episode, try making threads which will eventually reach people like Piyush Goyal, Smriti Irani, Dr. Jayashankar and PM Modi. Yeah, uh, we can do the one minute version, 140 second version compressed at the end. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Right. No, no, for sure. Uh, I love that you're breaking geopolitical narratives, etc. And you're kind of giving a strategic roadmap about what yes. we are supposed to do going forward. Yes. I have a lot of geopolitical questions related to India, which we yes. come to in some time. Yes. I'm going to like break away from geopolitics just for a second. Totally. And kind of go to a, a bit of a human level with you. Okay, sure, of course. Um, okay, and uh, again, please correct me where I'm making uh, wrong assumptions. Of course, about of course, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so the narrative for the longest time on the Indian internet, I'd probably even go as far as saying up to the podcast that we did with Dr. Jayashankar, which was in May of this year. He's our external affairs minister. Um, he didn't paint brain drain as something bad. Mm -hmm. That was the narrative on the Indian internet for very long that we've lost a lot of smart Indians to the rest of the world. Oh, yeah. Which that, was true, which is called the brain drain problem. Right. Brain and circulation is a better term or something like that. People have said. And that brain drain was the common term you'd right, hear in India. Right. Okay. I'll give you a, vi a visual of what it was like growing up in India for me. I'm born sure. in 1993. All my life, I was told by all my relatives that my biggest goal in life should be leaving the country. Mm. And by nature, I was a very rebellious person. So the more I was told to leave the country, the more I wanted to stay. Okay. So I ended up staying. All my friends ended up leaving. Mm. Most of them went to America. Mm. Many of them wished to come back. Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to take the same rebellious narrative and put it online. So I kind of fed this reverse brain drain problem. I said, no, you got to come back and you got to help the country. And then we have Dr. Jayashankar on the show. And he said that, no, no, don't look at it that way. Look at it like the Indians abroad need to help the Indians here. 
help the geopolitical uh, game that India is playing. Yes. Like we need to work together, like more like a tag team. Okay, so I'll give a framework on this. Sure. Okay? Right. So China is 10x Germany, India is 10x Israel. Okay, so China is 10x Germany, and I'll get to India in a second, right? Sure. Why, why I say China is 10x Germany? So China today is similar to the Germany of the early 20th century, where it is a manufacturing Goliath, Colossus, really, um, that is highly militarized, under one supreme leader, okay, non-English speaking, with territorial issues nearby, a beef against the Anglo-American order, and... Uh, is a legit contender for the tech and military power of the whole world, which in turn is causing a bandwagoning against it, okay? And a unification within the country, right? Very similar. Now, of course, those were non-white, you know, uh, those were, you know, in Germany, they were white and on the right. And in mm -hmm. China, they're non-white and ostensibly communist and on the left. But otherwise, Modeling China's 10x Germany as this giant manufacturing Goliath um, that's just very highly organized is a good way of thinking about it. Conversely, India is like 10x Israel, okay? Um, so uh, India has, so both China and India have a diaspora, right? But China's diaspora is starting to get pushed back abroad because all kinds of countries are, I think, many, many in many cases, very stereotypically, and it's unfortunate, but they're like, oh, every Chinese immigrant, uh, every Chinese tech guy, every Chinese person in academia, especially if they've got a Chinese first name, which indicates that they usually came from China recently, they're under suspicion of being a Chinese spy in the US, right? So it's becoming harder for the Chinese diaspora abroad. They're getting pushed back. And um, I think it'll be in those countries where China has hard power, like Iran or Africa, the Chinese diaspora can operate. And then they're like an extension of the Chinese state over there. But their soft power is eroding dramatically in, in the West and so on. India, and the reason that's important is if you go and look at um, academia in the USA, right? Like Stanford Electrical Engineering or something, you know, where, you know, 20 years ago, the department, and it's probably even, I haven't looked at the demographic state, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's even more so, was on the order of, 35, 40% Chinese, 35, 40% Indian, and the rest other groups, right? Those are almost like the two wings of the airplane from the grad students are propping it up. And um, so if you knock out one of those wings, if you knock out the Chinese tech talent wing on something, India will have to like surge to be the other part of it. So whereas the Chinese diaspora is receding, the Indian diaspora is accelerating, okay? So plus India's uh, general influence on the world stage is increasing. So India should be able to negotiate visa deals with many countries. You know, obviously Dr. Jay Shankar is very on top of it, very smart guy. But basically any country that asks him in India, you should say, okay, let's get a million visas a year or, or whatever reasonable number there is. You know, every country is scared of having, oh my God, if we have totally open you know, uh, transit, we're going to have a, a billion Indians coming in. But some very fast track, e-visa kind of thing so you can do business facilitates business travel back and forth. And that's the thing that's a huge pain, right? You just want to be able to go very quickly and go to a conference, go to something without a hassle, right? Um, so 
So what I think is going to happen is those countries will say yes to this with the passport ask, the visa ask. That's an ask, by the way, that lots of tech CEOs in the US are supportive of, lots of people on the left and the right in India. That's something that you can get a lot, a big coalition behind is just better travel, right, for Indians. So the Indian diaspora expands to fill the space the Chinese diaspora is receding to fill. Mm. And the thing is that if China plays perhaps the world's best home game, India plays perhaps the world's best away game. Wow. Wow. Okay. Okay. Mm. So China has built all this ridiculous infrastructure and so on at home. Their cities are amazing. They glow, all this stuff. India has exported all these tech CEOs and presidents and prime ministers and venture capitalists that are heads of billion dollar funds. All the guys like, you know, like my parents' generation, they spoke with an accent, right? But they planted seeds and now the 30 and 40 somethings like like myself, I'm, you know, just like one like tiny version of this, but there's a lot of folks who are my peers who're just entering the power corridor of our careers and we speak without an accent. Right? And we're leveling up in the world at large, right? So in a sense, there's about 7 million Indians that emigrated and um 7 8 million depending on how you look and the US, UK, Australia, Canada, they did very well abroad, okay? And then we're like the advanced scouts, okay, of this Indian diaspora. That's why I said India is like 10x Israel because Israel started with the diaspora and then got the state. Mm. India starts with the state and now is building the diaspora. Uh, I've never podcasted with a guest where I've thought to myself that, hmm, I'd love to work for this guy. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I have so much to say right now and only because of a time constraint, I'm holding back. I've sure. had so much to say in this whole episode, but I've been blown away by everything you've brought to this, which is why I've just shut up through this conversation. <laughs> okay. Uh, but I appreciate you. Great. And something tells me this is not the last time we're meeting in life. I'm sure. So either podcast with me more or hire me and uh, I will see you very, Let's very soon. Let's do some stuff together. Great. <laughs> no? All right. Good. Sure. Great. Thanks. Thank you. Okay. Thank All you, right. Bye. So this was part one of a very deep, very dense two-part conversation. The second part will be released in three days. I know this is one of those conversations where I didn't speak, but that was totally intentional. I feel with people like this, you just need to extract whatever you can, especially if you have the luxury of sitting in front of a mind like Balaji Srinivasan. Also, it was the first time that a lot of our regular TRS listeners would be introduced to this man's mind. Balaji Srinivasan is going to return on TRS in a few months' time. But for now, anticipate the even more loaded second part of this two-part conversation.